and welcome to the Second Row Podcast. My name is Park Kelly and as always I'm joined by Ushin Collins. Hello Park, coming to you from what appears to be a snowy Dublin as we record this on Sunday evening. Not sticking yet, but it's lucky the Pro 14 is taking a break for the next couple of weeks. I can't imagine trying to sweep this much snow off this many pitches if it sticks around. I saw clips from the US League and they literally just had the lines drawn out and the rest was playing played on the snow. Excellent. North America. Woo! Like, seriously, rugby as a winter sport there doesn't seem like the smartest idea some of the time. No, possibly not. For those of you listening, you've probably figured this out already, but we are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Everywhere. Everywhere. We're just everywhere. (laughs) Just hit that subscribe button so you can be guaranteed to get us straight away when we release. This week we're talking round 17 of the Pro 14, getting down to the last couple of rounds of the normal season and is really starting to get interesting. Yeah, the table's getting tighter and tighter and every game has so much riding on it. Before we do, we will take a look at the news from the rugby world as always, and a couple of big stories this week. One in the international space. This World Rugby League chat is picking up more and more momentum, which is very concerning. You mean the single worst thing to happen to rugby since England started messing around with the Heineken Cup? (laughs) Yeah, and similar type of ideas in terms of it's all about trying to generate more revenue, it's about trying to ring-fence the competition for particular teams... It's just special interests all over again and has the potential to throw things like the Lions Tour into doubt. Has potential to ruin things like the Rugby Championship and the Six Nations. The Pro 14, the Gallagher Premiership, the Top 14, like Super Rugby. I would love if the guys in charge of World Rugby would do the one thing everybody has been asking them to do for the last four years. Just fix the rugby calendar. Don't invent new competitions, just put proper windows in place proper player welfare approach to be taken and i think player welfare is the big kickback on this so far the players unions are furious i was so happy to see the likes of kieran reed johnny sexton owen farrell all coming out against this idea and and for a couple of reasons because the other one is it is completely exclusionary to what are regarded as tier two nations but probably the ones on the fringe of that the tier one and a half nations like fiji Just get absolutely shafted with this. And Japan are somehow intended to be included in this, despite the fact that their international rugby team is not up to scratch. And the Sun Wolves project over there in Super Rugby has been an abject failure. I saw this come out the other day and I was absolutely fuming. As a Conks fan who has seen his club almost wiped out, to see so many countries disregarded like this literally made my blood boil. The IRFU have shown at club level, if you help smaller teams grow it's better for everyone and that is something world rugby needs to learn from and not ring fence the top tier more teams playing top level rugby means more money for everyone not just ring fencing 12 well speaking of more teams the other big piece of news this week is the piece of news that isn't in the papers yet wales and the wru have been looking at this project reset and what exactly that's going to mean Nobody seems to know, but the rumour mill is going absolutely crazy. There's talk of the Ospreys being merged with the Blues. There's talk of RGC or some other club being set up as a professional entity in North Wales. It's just madness. And the PR on this, because what we don't really report on is the speculation, but what we can report on is how chronically this has been managed by the WRU from a press perspective. Everyone's known this is going to be happening for the last year at least. And they're just talking about announcing announcements and dates for announcements. Like someone there just needs to take the bull by the horns and do something because Welsh club rugby does need an injection of imagination. It needs a bit of confidence coming from somewhere. And you look at some of the results that were played out over the weekend. And we'll get to that as we talk through the individual matches. 
But when you have players like Alan Wynne-Jones, who doesn't know where he's going to be playing his rugby next season, who doesn't even know with whom he can negotiate a contract for next season, you just know it's not good enough. But the overall situation can help the contract negotiations in any of the clubs. For sure. It's pretty comprehensively a dumpster fire and we'll hope that some sort of coherent announcement comes out in the next week or two. But right now, it looks like Judgment Day in Wales might actually involve a last team standing actually gets funded next season. Or I just thought you were expecting like the T-1000 to come out and start killing people. That would probably be a better option than what's happening so far. (laughs) Speaking of the T-1000, we started this weekend's rugby in the RDS on Friday night with Leinster playing host to the Cheetahs in a surprisingly un-Leinster-like performance, only winning 19 points to 7 and failing to wrap up the bonus point. Oh, like... (laughs) <laughs> you know, they, they can't. My heart bleeds for them. <laughs> it really does not in any way, shape, or form. This was a very uninspiring start to the Pro 14 weekend. Mm. The only game on Friday night, two teams renowned for their attacking flair playing kick tennis. Oh. And that's not particularly driven by the conditions. Like, Friday night wasn't great. But it certainly wasn't the type of deterioration that we saw at grounds across the UK and Ireland over the course of the weekend. Yeah, it was definitely the better of the bad conditions. It was greasy, but nothing to stop good rugby being played. Irish players should know how to catch a wet ball. Yeah, and I think they had enough opportunity to do so. Cheetah seeming to be quite happy to rain kick after kick after kick down on that Leinster back three. And not particularly looking for possession or trying to win the ball back not contestable just trying to pin them back and you know remove the pressure from their own lines well like one of Leinster's big strong points over the years has been building phases and building phases in opposition 22 it's very hard to do that when all you're doing is constantly playing from outside your own 22 hmm. and when McFadden Kearney and Ross Byrne are getting the ball they're not exactly going to sidestep and make an extra 20 yards easily enough so it's actually quite a safe ploy to play territorially correct it's the kind of game that if Shane Daly had wanted to spend a little bit more time running the ball back or if the likes of Jordan Larmore had been in the team they could have done real damage with that much possession but a relatively conservative approach from Leinster with the ball they were being given yeah or even if Adam Byrne was on the receiving end of some of those kicks but he wasn't Cheetah's kicking tactic was annoying but not ineffective I tell you what was effective Max Wane he is so quick and on the couple of occasions where they did get turnover ball, he was electric and got a try out of one of those. The great thing about that try is the ref had to check was he offside because he was just that fast reacting to it. Mm. The ball bounced up to him perfectly. It was one of those Stockdale-esque bounces where he, it was always going to go to his hands. And that leveled the game up in 15 minutes. From there, we just saw a long bit of a slog to the finish. Leinster getting two more tries, one either side of half time, But... Not a whole lot of incident in the game. I mean, Leinster weren't as poor as the Cheetahs were on the day. They made less errors in terms of the options that they were taking and their execution. But still, a surprisingly unclinical performance from the champions. A lot of ball being dropped, but on occasion, just the wrong pass being taken to people not in the right position. So that's why the ball was being dropped, because the passes weren't quite right for the people running onto them. But really, this game's going to be overshadowed by the yellow card in the opening half. Oxniche, in my eyes, should have been red-carded. His elbow hit the Leinster player's chest, but then his shoulder just smashed into his face. Like, that's a red card. Every day of the week. Any mitigating factors? The yellow card was given before the TMO was called in? Hmm. I don't think that one's in the law book. No, and that really should have been walked back 
but it didn't have any bearing on the outcome, and that's really all that matters from a Leinster perspective. This is it. That result puts Leinster guaranteed top of Conference B, guarantees them their home semi-final. So I guess you can ask the question, what do they really have to play for? Do they need a big win? Does it matter? And with a team as disrupted as theirs is, with international players coming in and out of squad, I don't think they're going to be crying too hard over a result like this. No, like their line out on Mall functioned really well, but they just didn't get to use it enough. They didn't put the ball in the right areas to really dominate because Cheetah's line out was shocking. And if that set-piece platform isn't working, which it certainly wasn't in this case, you'd have to think that gap that they have to third place is going to be far too much for them to make up at this stage. Disappointing for the Cheetahs. They really wanted a win here in order to keep their season on track. And that's them probably out the race. And if you look at their conference rivals, Connacht had a big game against the Ospreys on Saturday. And what an emphatic win. Yeah, 46 points to 5. That is as convincing a win as you really could have asked for. The bonus point wrapped up in the first half as well. Yeah. Like And it needed to be because that was a huge gale. I was there at the sports ground and we were there going, that's a 20, 30 point wind. You know, Ospreys aren't a bad team. They're just going through a rocky patch. You need to be well ahead. Well, there's rocky patches and then there's the fact that they haven't got a win in five games and have only won once away from home this season. The only team with a worse away record than Connacht <laughs> is the Ospreys. But having said that, they still managed to get some relatively simple tries. Ospreys didn't bring a lot to the party here. No, a lot of it was off cheap line breaks. Peter Robb and Tom Farrell just dominated in midfield and were just able to get their hands free when needed, break the line when required, and just set up two of the nicest tries you'll ever see in the first half. And they were getting fed good ball from Marmion and Godwin, but again, the pack for Connacht were all over Ospreys. The breakdown was so non-competitive. Yeah, we just had easy enough ball. And Godwin making his first start at 10 for Conk really had such an easy day. And he got man the match for it because he's playing out of position. You didn't need to be the greatest 10 in the world given the ball he had. Yeah, having said that, he still needed to move the ball around. And I think he got a lot of support from that Connacht back line. We've been saying for weeks how good Tom Farrell has been this season. And when he's firing and Peter Robb coming back in for you guys has been like a new signing this year. He's completely brought his game back. And I think he's out of contract at the end of the season. So this is a big showing to put himself on the shop window. Yeah, Robin Copeland syndrome. (laughs) Well, he has been injured for the last two years, effectively. Fair. Matt Healy was good as well. And I think the difference is he always looks good in games where he's not tested. Like defensively he's a little bit frail but going forward great interplay and great attacking lines yeah and his try was off some really nice play in midfield and he just picked the peach of a line to find a gap but Ospreys are falling off tackles like it was just too easy what I would have expected though at least is that after half time get Steve Clark into the room organize what they're trying to do and come out with a tactically astute second half and try and put some respect back on that scoreline but they didn't even do that. and I mean, just not playing the conditions effectively at all. The game was played more in Osprey's half than the Connacht half in the second. And given the fact that the wind was as strong as it was, that's just shocking management by Osprey's. Mm. There was one kind of controversial moment in this game where Kyle Godwin got absolutely done in a tackle. And there was so much noise from the crowd that the referee actually went back for a look just to make sure there was a proper rap and found something he was not expecting. Yeah, I know. Like, the mad thing is, I was there, and because I don't have a ref link, 
I just see a guy getting carried in. I'm like, but that was a good tackle. What What's he looking at that I'm not seeing? Yeah. Twitter was very quick to tell me I was wrong, saying it was about a tackle. There was a trip off the ball that would have possibly led to a try. Ah, I see. Well, between that and the penalty try that Connacht did get awarded, which I think was a fairly reasonable call, given, you know, knock on, in the tackle, always going to be a penalty. With three players with no defenders in front of them. With a three-man overlap. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a fair enough call. But again, incidents like that had no real effect on the complexion of the game. It was a, a hosing. And yeah. Ospreys, I think, will have been glad to get out of the sports ground and just get home. Yeah, they had literally no interest in being there in the first place. Three yellow cards across the game is just shocking. Yeah, you know what? Discipline not good enough, and they've got a couple of weeks off as we get back to the international window to sort that out. The other game of critical importance for the playoffs this weekend was that between Benetton and Edinburgh in Italy on Saturday afternoon. Benetton running out winners for this one, 18 points to 10. Like, this was a serious, serious arm wrestle, but Benetton not touching the ball for the first 10 minutes effectively. Yeah, they were soaking up a huge amount of pressure. Edinburgh came out looking the stronger of the two sides, but unable to break them down. And part of that was helped by the fact that the breakdown was just the Wild West, and that continued all afternoon. Players coming in from the side, players holding onto the ball, just completely unrefereed. But Benetton seemed to, but Benetton seemed to ride the conditions better. They just played a bit smarter. Yeah, in general, Benetton were the better of the two sides at managing the conditions and playing what was being whistled. But Edinburgh had a little bit of smarts in it as well. Probably due, if you look at a couple of players coming back in, great for Hamish Watson to make it back in for a Scotland perspective. And WP Nell really had their scrum firing on all cylinders. But the thing is, Edinburgh were happy enough to kick the ball away, and particularly given that Benetton's back three looked a little bit shaky under the high ball. A smart call if the three lads aren't really that comfortable where Benetton's comfort really is is when they're down a man. And one of their defensive sets was incredible. Yeah, they had a player on the ground injured, so we've talked about how strong they are under yellow card periods. But the same thing here. They're just so aware of how much space the players in the line can cover. At one stage, they absolutely shot out of the line. And I was kind of starting to get a little bit worried. But it was a completely good call. When you looked at the wide shot afterwards, there was a big overlap coming. Whereas they went back, caught the Edinburgh player behind the line and then actually managed to force a turnover and relieve the pressure. Just, again, smart decision-making from Benetton. And the thing that really stood out was how composed they were across this game. Despite the fact that they never really had a commanding lead, you did always feel like they could win this match. At 3-3 at half time, all the real action was in the second half, though. It was, and the lead changed hands a couple of times there. Helped in a huge way by Edinburgh absolutely emptying the bench. Now... You can look at this as being a game in the international window and priorities being as they were, but a lot of Edinburgh's frontline players who were left in that team were dropping out as the game went on. And Benetton needed to win this game in the last 15 minutes. And whereas what they were bringing in off the bench was experienced players with multiple international caps, Edinburgh were bringing very junior players on at the expense of old hands. And I think that really told. It looked in a lot of ways like... That was the winning of the game for Benetton. But that try from Edinburgh to put them in the lead was a peach. Johnston, a proper one-man effort. Yeah, just deciding that he wasn't going to do this drift left, drift right stuff that had been Edinburgh's attacking plan for the entire game. Step back, big step off the right foot and beats three or four players to win under the posts. Absolute peach of a try. And then with Benetton chasing the game, McKinley gets pulled off on 67 minutes. Now, you and I have seen Antonio Rizzi come on and have some pretty ropey games for Benetton. 
I know I started praying for them as well, but you know. <laughs> well, they got a penalty advantage, and then one of their wingers chips a grubber through. Who's on the end of the ball? Ritzy. And drains the conversion as well. So at this point, it's 15 points to 10. Penalty awarded on the 80th minute. Who steps up for Benetton? Ritzy and knocks over an absolute stunner of a penalty to deny Edinburgh even a losing bonus point. Which was so important because Benetton finished that game fairly panicky. They did. They seemed to forget that they had the game won and were trying to run an awful lot of ball. But you know what? The hits that were going in in this game, I'm not surprised that people were tired and starting to lose concentration at the end of it. It was tremendously physical. And if you look from an Edinburgh perspective, that was highlighted in how dominant their scrum was in the first half. And they just had moments of brilliance across the 80 minutes. They did. Unfortunately, just I think their bench really, really damaged Edinburgh's chances of winning this game. Having said that, if Benetton had a better place kicker than McKinley, they may not have been in that position. And their line-out was not good. We do have to give a shout out to Ryan Nugent, though. He actually learned it's Benetton and not, not Treviso. <laughs> yeah, you could hear him kind of like gritting his teeth because his co-commentator was uh, hadn't got the same memo. But somebody had obviously had a word with with the commentary team in Air Sport to ensure that they gave it the Benetton rugby treatment for the whole game. It's a personal pet peeve of mine. So thank you, Ryan, for making this game eminently more watchable. In all fairness, we do tweet him every time he says it. So. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that as well. <laughs> Speaking of watchable, I had my head in my hands for an awful lot of the next game. Scarlets v Munster and the Welsh team getting a 10-6 win here in a, a pretty low-skilled game of rugby. It wasn't good by any shape of the imagination. There was one piece of magic and that was a Scarlets try. Oh, I thought you meant where the TV coverage disappeared and I didn't have to watch it for four minutes. I was listening to the commentary in my car and having to hear Luke Fitzgerald, Peter Stringer and Tommy Bow talk about a game that they weren't watching. It was quite <laughs> surreal. Yeah, stupid Brexit. <laughs> but let's be perfectly honest. Munster were on top for the gut to this game, but didn't do anything with the ball they had. Munster had 80% possession in the first half and 70% in the second half. We had so much ball and it was a weird pattern that the game was playing out. Munster would get to within the Scarlet's five metre line pound away at it impotently for about five minutes, knock the ball on, at which point the Scarlets would hoof the ball, repeat. Or get turned over. Or get turned over. But either way, we just didn't seem to be able to keep the head and and score tries. And that's really frustrating, given that we had Matthewson, who's been that kind of cool commander for us a couple of times this season. Between him and Billy Holland making poor decisions, I was actually annoyed for Munster fans. And especially in the first half when there was three penalties in a row. And so just taking three points or going back into the corner, he tapped and went. Because Scarlets were definitely on a final warning for yellow card if that mall went down again. That would have been the smart thing to do, but we didn't play smart rugby. We played really stupid rugby. And despite the fact that the conditions were awful, the ball was definitely a bar of soap. It didn't seem to be affecting the Scarlets half as badly as Munster. Although admittedly, they only had the ball for about 15 minutes in total. And they did enough with it. For me, Munster lost that game on that decision by Billy Holland for the tap and go around 30 minutes into the first half. That was the losing of the game for Munster. The heads were gone very early in the game. It was. And even watching the last half hour where we had a couple of opportunities, two big opportunities to win the game. One disallowed for Reese Marshall just running ahead of the ball carrier. And despite the fact that the Scarlets player made an absolute meal of it, there was still contact with someone ahead of the ball. So you Even know. if there wasn't, it was 
still illegal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, if they hadn't touched anybody. But anyway, <laughs> no, like that's one that was annoying because it was theatrics, but it was still completely the right decision. And then Arno Botha got so close to getting over the line and Lee Halfpenny came out of nowhere to strip the ball as he tried to reach it over. I, I was watching this just going, we're not going to do this. And that's really frustrating because Munster of old and even Munster of kind of good games in the last couple of years will grind out results on days like this. I just didn't have that sense at any minute watching the game in Wales. If you took some of the penalties that you had, you could have won this 12 points to 10, not losing it 10 points to 6. Yeah. It was poor. And at the end of the day, that's the main thing you can take away from it. Munster's handling should have been better. Munster's decision-making should have been better. Their execution and composure was still in Limerick. Having said that, the Scarlet's defence was outstanding. Uzer Kasim putting in 31 tackles and half of the Scarlet's forwards making 20-plus tackles as well. I know they had to because of the possession stats, but that's just a huge amount of pressure to soak up. And it's so rare to make that amount of tackles and come out with the victory because eventually you creak. Yeah, all credit to Scarlets. They've still got a long way to climb up the conference B ladder, but it was a very impressive physical performance. They just need to bring a little bit more to the table from an attacking point of view. And Glasgow will be delighted with that result. They will. They had a huge opportunity knowing that Munster were playing away from home against a tough Scarlets outfit. While they were going to Zebra, bottom team in the conference, bottom team in both conferences, and the result reflected that, running out with a 42 points to 10 win. Even if Zebra did score first and actually start the better. They did. I think the problem was that they then made an error immediately after the kickoff. Despite Zebra working their way down in a really composed fashion, you can't afford to let the ball hit the deck from a dropout. A couple of phases later, Glasgow are camped, scrummaging Zebra to within an inch of their life under the posts, and Matt Fagerson just runs over before the penalty try can be awarded by Andrew Brace. What amazed me in this game is Glasgow didn't have to try very hard for any of their scores. I think there was a shotgun in every Zebra player's hands, and they just kept shooting themselves in the foot. They did. Like When they were on the ball, there was a couple of nice pieces of backline work. They were running better patterns than I've seen a lot of their stuff this year, and they were prepared to offload and, you know, have a go. But defensively, they were at sixes and sevens, except their flankers weren't doing anything either. It was just completely inept. And Glasgow got five tries in the first half. I'm surprised they even came back in the second half. They would have been able to put no one on the field and still won. Yeah, the, a lot of them as well were just switched off stuff. Fizarro ran 60 metres after Zebra let the ball come out the back of the ruck and had nobody covering the backfield. There was a line-out move where the Glasgow centre just ran a simple screen line and nobody tackled him. And one try off a grubber kick that just bounced off everyone into a Glasgow player's hands. Total pinball effort and Rory Jackson gets to dot down the bonus point try in his 150th appearance. The thing is, the big talking point again from Zebra in this week, like last week, was Carlo Canna. He gets himself red carded this week after two yellow cards. Yeah, a deliberate knockdown that is a yellow every day of the week. And then just a moment of pure frustration with himself. After getting hit a little bit late, he kicks his feet out into the Glasgow player's chest. And you could just see Andrew Brace spotted it straight away, went up to the TMO to make sure that he, I think he didn't believe that he'd seen it. He was like, I've got to have an angle for this. But you, it, it's the sign of a player who is mentally imploding. He was trying stuff that wasn't on. He was throwing rubbish passes and 
he is badly in need of rehabilitating his own concentration and composure. And you know what? If I was a Zebra fan, what I would find very annoying is Benetton are bringing in Ian Keatley next season as two of their 10s are going to be at the World Cup. Canna is still going to be the number one 10 for Zebra. This is a problem now. It is, and I just don't know what they do about it because every week he seems to be getting further and further away from the player who there was a genuine toss-up at the start of the year when we were doing previews about whether it would be him or Tommaso Allen driving that Italian outfit for the World Cup. He looks like a shadow of himself. It's it's a real worry. And even if in the last 20 minutes of this match, Zebra did get a bit more of the ball, they didn't look like doing much. Glasgow just were able to bat them away. Yeah, there's not a whole lot for either of these sides to take out of this game. Zebra badly beaten. Glasgow, a really important bonus point win, puts them back to the top of Conference A and in the driving seat, really, for the closeout of the season. But in terms of what they will learn from player perspectives or teams, just not enough of a contest here to take anything meaningful from. And speaking of a contest, Saturday's final match, Cardiff hosted the Southern Kings. And the Kings got my hopes up here. (laughs) They got my hopes up. Like, they made a match of this. They really did. They lost 26 points to 19 in the end. And they did get deserved losing bonus point. But they could have had so much more. Like, the kingsiest start to a game. Pretorius at 10 tries to thread a Gorber through. And it just pops up into Owen Lane's hands. And he just runs the length of the field. Two minutes in and the Kings are 7-0 down. What was disappointing is there were a few covering tactics there that could have worked a bit harder to stop that try. The lock in particular just looked like he was doing like shuttle runs for fitness rather than actual contact work. Yeah, just keep up with him there. See if he can. <laughs> can you catch a winger? No, you cannot. But you could also try. Uh, to be fair, I think of all of the games this weekend, this one had the worst conditions. It was horrendous from start to finish. And that really fed into how Cardiff liked to play this season. Their back row was getting on top because once this turned into trench warfare, only one team was going to come out the victor. Definitely. What was strange here, though, was Cardiff were responsible for, I'd say, 90% of the penalties in this game. They won a number of breakdown penalties, getting turnovers, but they were living offside. And Joy Neville must have pinged them a half a dozen, a dozen times for breaking the offside line. Well, in all fairness, that wasn't the most blatant thing she pinged Cardiff for. Nick Williams with the single most inexcusable penalty I've ever seen. And he got a yellow card for his troubles. It was so daft. There was a long chain driving mall. And Williams just blows through the middle of it like a car at an intersection. He came from five yards away as four (laughs) Kings players were charging towards the line. And split them into two pods of two. I love the expression on the Kings tight head who was left at the front of that back half. Who's just pointing at Williams being like, are you serious? What's just happened here? What are you doing? (laughs) He got a yellow for his troubles and Kings used that advantage to get a try and get back into the game. They did and they got that score before halftime leveled it up with the conversion but then more importantly they came out in the second half and got another try in quick succession and those two tries were very reminiscent of what they did against Leinster last week for their tries in the first half good pack play keeping it tight and tidy and just wearing their opposition down the difference here is that whereas Leinster were 
kind of in the ascendancy and were just able to rack up the gears. Cardiff were able to really bring their bench to bear. Matthew Morgan came on and just generated an awful lot of good go-forward ball. Remember how important he was in that game against Glasgow a couple of weeks ago? Same type of thing here. Stepping players, finding space, finding the outside edge. Really, really turned the temperature up on the Kings. And given the fact that Kings couldn't exit their own 22 given the wind, his ability to create space and give the ball off help Cardiff come away with the win here the other side of it though age old story the Kings in discipline and after having such a good game where admittedly they were a little bit off the pace at the breakdown as we've said they tend to do when their intensity drops this lunatic tip tackle cost them a man in the bin for 10 minutes the thing is it was so unnecessary wasn't in open play it was basically a bit of really bad rucking by the inside centre but right after a knock-on like the game was basically about to be blown up for a scrum and he's really lucky that his own teammate was diving on the loose ball because that's the only thing that stopped the Cardiff player landing on their head yeah kind of cushioned the fall a bit but you know what it was as clear a yellow card as you could see and it gave Cardiff that little bit of an edge that they needed they were able to get the tri bonus point at that stage and sew up the win yeah and with the game one they switched off a small bit Kings got their deserved losing bonus point but they definitely did deserve it. They were competitive. And I think what was really impressive, they needed to drain a conversion into that wind to get it. And Banda stepped up and popped it over really convincingly. Which, you know, I think it was nice that they could rely on the backs to do something because their forwards were getting beaten up for most of that day. And they were absolutely getting pumped in the scrum. Kings seem to be a team that get to do one thing well a game and never quite get everything to work in unison. Yeah, whereas Cardiff were very much firing on all cylinders. Jared Evans had another good game. He's really enjoying his run of matches at 10. And that back row was just unstoppable again. Ollie Robinson got man of the match for, I think, just dominating all of those turnovers, but being a strong tackler and a couple of nice moves in attack I as well. I thought it was mainly for being a back row who threw an under-the-legs pass and scored a try <laughs> off the same move. Yeah, but two phases later. That was kind of slick. And we'll move on to Sunday. And Dragons hosted Ulster and... Ulster came away with a much-needed tri-bonus point. Yeah, 28 points to 15 winners in Newport, but they made this hard work. Very, very, very hard. And for me, that comes from John Cooney. And I like John Cooney. I'm a big John Cooney fan. But he had a very much saw that I'm winning this game on my own mood about him today. Even to the point that the commentators mentioned it. like It just seemed like... He was trying to win the game every time he touched the ball and forgot there was 14 other players wearing the same jersey who were there to help him in that particular mission. Uh, I was amazed, though, that the Dragons weren't down to 14 men inside the first 10 minutes. There was a fairly blatant knock-on here that I thought was about as deliberate as they come. And if you see the softer one in relative terms in the Connacht match, like, that's madness. It is. Maybe the referee was just confused because he thought it was a different sport being played or that it was the National Ploughing Championships. That pitch at Rodney Parade is a disgrace. I thought it was a field, not a pitch. Oh, it's hard to tell. <laughs> it's like the whole thing in Father Ted. It's not a field, really. There's just less rocks in it than the rest of the <laughs> island. It's not a pitch. There's just more grass in it than the rest of the village. And, yeah, that's that was Rodney Parade. But, look, Dragons, for all their troubles, did take the lead. They did, but you know what? Ulster came back in, got their first try, and then when Dragons did have a chance to keep in touch, Lewis kicked a shot at goal that went 
closer to the corner flag than it did to the actual posts. Like, this game took the guts of 25 minutes to half an hour to get going. Balakun should have had an, a second try, but he had the worst winger's finish in the world and got pushed into touch far too easily. He did, and you've kind of got three options when you're running down that line. One is you just try and burn the player for pace and just get ahead of him, put all of your energy into speed through the legs. Didn't do that. The other one is that you basically drop your inside shoulder and just try and ride the tackle and get over the line. Didn't do that. And the third one is that you slide low, slide fast, and slide early. And he didn't do that either. He just kind of jumped in pretty high up and presented himself for the tackle. Not only did he not get the try, he knocked the ball on. Like, inexperienced there more so than anything else, but he'll learn from that. He will, and I can guarantee you he will score next time. What you would expect, though, is more senior players to not make brain farts. And Darren Cave got yellowed for a terrible early tackle. This was just one of these moments that I think he saw that the Dragons player who was making the break had kind of shoved another defender shoulder to shoulder. Uh, And I don't know whether it was just red mist, but Cave makes the tackle nearly before the pass has been shipped, takes the player out. So clear yellow card, just daft, really daft stuff. But it didn't stop Ulster. They scored while down to 14 men. More getting over after some really poor defending by Dragons on their own try line. The thing is, you could tell at that point that the Dragons' heads were dropped. They came out in the second half and the floodgates had pretty much opened. Ulster were able to find an awful lot of space for that 10-15 minute period. Ludic putting Cooney in for a very easy finish for their third try. I gotta say... We were giving out about the pitch. Ludic's jersey was bright white after half 60 minutes. Like, seriously, what was he doing all game? <laughs> Maybe he put it in for a quick rinse at halftime. Ulster really did do their level best to not close this game out, though. Dave Shanahan got blocked down several times. In a row. Like, not just, like, across his performance. In a row. Line out, rook, kick, block down. Line out, rook, <laughs> kick, block down. But it's okay. They decided to up the difficulty level again then, getting two players yellow carded in the space of about three minutes. Madness. Complete madness. And for all for the exact same thing that Dragons didn't get yellow card for in the first half. For slapping the ball down in the pass. At least one of them came out with a penalty try because there was no hope an officer defender was getting there. You know what? Maybe if Louis hadn't got such a clean jersey, the ref wouldn't have seen him do it. <laughs> I tell you what, though, for Dragons not to even get back within losing bonus point range at this point, when Ulster spent pretty much the last 10 minutes of the game down to 13 men, is kind of inexcusable. And to concede the try bonus point to a 13-man team, the 23 players from Dragons should be brought outside the back of their local Wetherspoons and shot. It just wasn't good enough. But you know what? There were some green shoots coming in there. A couple of their players had good performances. The standout for me... Definitely Basham. Started the game at open side and finished it at number eight. He's only 19, 20 years old. He is a talent and you can see if he gets nurtured, he'll be a big player in years to come. I think that's why it's so important for the Welsh regions to get some certainty in there. They're not going to attract the right type of senior players to do mentorship roles or good coaches if they don't have some kind of future in that club. Speaking of young players, Eric O'Sullivan picked up the Man of the Match award. How good has he been? He was brilliant and we flagged him early on the season for being a great prop around the pitch. His scrummagings come on leaps and bounds with game time. He is an all-round good player now. Interesting. There was reports during the week that Jack McGrath might be heading up to Ulster next year. I think he'll have to play really well to unseat Eric O'Sullivan, who's made that number one jersey his own. If Jack McGrath does end up in Ulster and Eric O'Sullivan takes a bit of a backseat, what a player to learn from. Definitely. 
So where does that leave the conferences at the end of the weekend? In Conference A, Glasgow, Pip, Munster back into first place. 61 points. They're three ahead of Munster who are on 58. Still very much a two-horse race as to who gets a home semi-final. And, and a week off. And a week off. And who has to run through a quarter. Third place, it seems like it's l- trying to settle out a bit here. Connacht and Cardiff both on 47 points. And hard to see past one of these two teams at this stage. The key game here is going to be Connacht v Cardiff in the sports ground. Basically a straight shootout for third place, or that could very well be what it looks like in a couple of weeks' time. But after the weekend's results, Ospreys and Cheetahs are now fifth and sixth on 39 and 36 points respectively. I think that third, even fourth, is kind of a long shot for them now. It's still mathematically possible, but hard to see the making of the ground, particularly given the form they've had of late. In Conference B, it's getting tighter and tighter again. Leinster wrapped up that first place, but any one of Benetton, Ulster, Scarlets and Edinburgh could still potentially make the playoffs. Benetton in the driving seat at the moment on 50 points, Ulster just behind them on 49, and then Scarlets at 45 are just outside there, and Edinburgh on 42. Edinburgh seem to have a touch of the Glasgow's, but they don't have the cushion that Glasgow had last season. They need to start winning games when their internationals are back. To one, possibly get back into those qualification spots, or at worst, be in the playoff for the Champions Cup. I'd be surprised if Edinburgh don't have a stronger finish to the season than Scarlets once they get their players back. They've just had such a good run of form. What'll be interesting, I think, though, is how it plays out with the European fixtures. Edinburgh have a big quarter-final matchup in Murrayfield against Munster. Scarlets have no such distractions. That could be key. And the same is true for Ulster and Benetton. Ulster have to go to the Aviva to play Leinster in their European quarter-final, and Benetton get the week off after you guys put them out of Europe. <laughs> we got to look after us, you know? <laughs> well, not a whole lot more rugby to be played here and it's really going to come down to the wire for a couple of those positions. I'm just wondering, will Leinster just forfeit the rest of their games to give everyone the best rest possible because it won't make any difference in the conference? They can just play the under-20 sides. I mean, they've got a lot of players who'll be coming back in off the Ireland under-20 setup who will be happy to take the match time on, I'm sure. And we'll move on now to the second row top performer and clown the round. And... We like hearing from you guys and getting suggestions. So do get in touch on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the second row. That is 2ND, not the word second. Because it makes our job easier and we don't have to figure out who these people are. Because <laughs> we really do go through the motion trying to figure these out. So top performer first? Yeah, you pick it because you seem to have got an eye for this the last couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, it seems to have fallen out that way, all right? So for me, top performer came from that Cardiff Southern Kings game. For a lot of reasons, but also it was one of the most competitive games of the weekend and players really lifted their performances. We've spoken about how important that Cardiff back row unit is. For me, Nick Williams really stood out as top performer. He got a try, he carried a load of ball and his work at the breakdown is exceptional. Nick Williams in no way looks like a man who should be a quality rugby player. But he tends, he just turns in these like cardio intensive performances week after week. And he's a huge leader within that team as well. So a useful Bastero. A useful Bastero, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, watching that game, he was very good. And he's such a key player for Cardiff. It's very important that he's fit and playing at this level for the rest of the season. For Cardiff, I I won't mind if his form drops, to be personally honest. Oh, shocker. (laughs) Well, I tell you what. You picked our clown of the round this week, and I'm I'm I think you probably nearly picked Nick for that. Uh... I, I I did nearly pick Nick Williams for that ridiculous yellow card that he just <laughs> ran through that mall. 
I vetoed this. You can't have the top performer be the clown of the round as well. So I don't know. You had to go to option two. For me, it has to be Nigel Owens for that ridiculous call in the Leinster Cheetahs match. How on earth that wasn't a red card, I'll never know. And the worst thing about it was, when the TMO flagged it to him, he talked himself down from the red to make his decision correct, which actually was the worst thing about the decision. Uh, the biggest challenge for me is that Nigel Owens is a hugely experienced and extremely capable referee, but I think he's been drinking a little bit too much of the Kool-Aid lately. It's the Nigel Owens show, and he decides what he wants and then bends the laws of the game or the circumstances to suit that narrative. It was really clear a couple of weeks ago where the TMO was trying to explain something to him and he was just talking him back down into his box. And yeah, the TMO is there to help, but you have to be a big enough man as a referee to realise if you've got a call wrong and take the help. That's why it's a refereeing team. And the reason this week's annoyed me so much is because week in, week out, concussion, concussion, concussion is the top story in rugby. And when a ref doesn't go to the letter of the law on a shoulder to the face, that sends out a huge warning, and especially a ref of Nigel's quality and profile. It's not the right message to be sending out to the game, and I think we'll almost definitely see a sighting handed down for that this week, which will be good, because if you can't qualify that even your best referees make mistakes, then the system doesn't work. There's no hope for anyone in that situation. (laughs) So looking forward to the round 18 fixtures, which won't take place next week. We're back to Six Nations action. But on the 22nd of March on Friday night, we have Cardiff playing host to the Scarlets, Connacht hosting Benetton, and Edinburgh hosting Leinster back in Scotland. Big games, and again, really important for the outcome of those conferences. As much as we don't like to make calls, one, we're not going to because it's three weeks away almost, and two... Who knows what internationals will be back? Who knows what players these guys will have? What type of Six Nations hangovers they'll be? So look, these are important games for the conferences and we will be back to talk about them as always. And kind of standalone games with Europe coming up the week after as well. On the Saturday then, Ospreys play host to the Dragons in a game that presumably even the Ospreys can win. Ulster play host to the Southern Kings. Same rules apply. And then on Saturday evening, Glasgow have Cheetahs at home and Munster have Zebra at home which could be two blowouts, but could not. Who knows? I would love to see the Glasgow Cheetahs match be the Glasgow Cheetahs match we deserve. The 50 points apiece game of just a ball being (laughs) thrown around with no care whatsoever. Northern Hemisphere Super Rugby. Well, yeah. (laughs) yeah. The Six Nations is back next week, as we mentioned. On Saturday, Scotland host Wales, still on track for the Grand Slam or Wales. And then England go to Italy looking for a bonus point win to try and keep that chase going they still need Ireland to do them a favour on the last day but they have to pick up every point in the process yeah and Ireland will be hoping that Scotland can do us a favour because that way we have something to play for on the last day more than just stopping a grand slam absolutely Scotland basically have the opportunity this week and next week to stop Wales and stop England and there's nothing Scotland love more than ruining people's fun as we all remember from the year we could have won when it was foot and mouth yeah Scotland do us long long memories (laughs) do us a favour this time Scotland and peeing the cornflakes of Wales and English fans. Ireland's big game is on Sunday against France, hosted in Dublin, and it'll be really interesting to see which Ireland team turns up, the Ireland team of last year or the Ireland team of the last couple of games. And, you know, which France team will show up, the good one or the other one? Yeah, is it going to be the English clown fiesta or the Scottish demolition job? With the good 9 and 10. Oh, who knows? 
but we'll be watching it and by the time we're back talking about Pro 14 the Six Nations will be over and we will have a tournament winner we'll talk about that then we're going to take two weeks off and thanks everyone for listening that is us for this week's podcast we'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk to you about the Pro 14 and all going on in the rugby world so until next time thanks again and take care good luck everyone we